you would, please take out your Bibles and open them up to 2 Timothy. There we resume our study this morning. We find ourselves in the final chapter of this book, the second letter to Timothy. We've been making our way now for some time. We started in 1 Timothy, and now we're in 2, and we are in the final chapter of this letter to young Timothy by the Apostle Paul. And we have looked, as, as we've looked through all of these, both of these letters, through all these chapters and verses, uh, we keep coming back around to the notion of faithfulness, faithfulness to God, faithfulness to truth, faithfulness to the Word, faithfulness to labor in the Spirit. And that, that doesn't change. And we're, we're getting, as Paul is wrapping it up, he's doing what Paul often does. He's basically said everything he wants to say to Timothy. This is the way Paul works. If you read his letters, there is a bit of repetition to them. That's why we don't get or should not be put off by repetition in Scripture because the apostle is not trying to throw out novel ideas. He's trying to give Timothy and the church a reminder of how we're called to live and what that means for us and how we apply Scripture to our lives consistently and thoroughly and live it out. And so we would expect a bit of repetition there. Well, this, this morning, what we're looking at here before he gives the final instructions, these personal instructions to Timothy, he's given him one final charge, but as we will read this, you'll, you'll realize this is not a new charge. He's given Timothy this charge before, but he's coming back around to this as this is the bookend to how this message started, this letter started. This is the bookend to exactly what Paul wants to highlight for Timothy, and so this is important. And so this morning, really without further delay, let us now turn our attention and time and minds toward the Scriptures themselves. This morning we'll be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant Word. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. So ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for its clarity its purity, its piercing quality that gets to the heart of who we are. Father, pierce deeply, we pray this morning. Renew our minds, strengthen our hearts, give us your grace to receive from you today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. To say that words are powerful is an obvious statement. I think if we lived a long enough time and experience have taught us that words indeed are powerful. Now, we live in a culture that has tried to make words something that they're not, that has tried to make words uh, to equate 
uh, words with physical violence. And I'm not saying that words can't incite violence, but we have to make a, a neat distinction between physically harming somebody and, wor- and words. And yet, words have power. They can do emotional damage. I mean, you know, a picture a father saying something to his son that ripples out for the rest of his life. Fathers can say things to their sons. If you have sons, fathers can say things to their sons that their sons never forget, both positive and negative. Daughters, moms and daughters have this connection. Moms can say things to daughters that they will never forget, both positive and and negative. Why? Because words are powerful. They pack a punch emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. Because if we think about it by a word, we could be grieved. Someone could say something that just tears our heart out. Or by a word, we can be really encouraged. You know, when you send somebody a a note and you say encouraging things to them, we should know that that's powerful. It means something. It has power to give people compliments, to acknowledge something in someone that we appreciate. Those things build up. But in, in the same token, we can take our words with our mouths and tear somebody down. So words are powerful. Now, it's no wonder that words carry the power that they do because we are created in the image of God. And it was by His Word that He created the earth. Jesus came as the Word made flesh to act as a mediator between us and God. And so there's a great deal of emphasis placed on Word from God in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke, and it happened. So we need to just step back and realize words do have power because we are made in the one who speaks, and it happens. So words have a creative force, and they have a destructive force. Jesus called Lazarus back to life, and he cursed a fig tree unto death, both with his spoken word. So words have power. So why do you think then that when Paul has one final charge to Timothy, one final thing he wants to say to him before he dies, what is his message to Timothy? Preach the Word. Because he understands that the power in Timothy's ministry is not in Timothy's giftedness, it's not in his age, it's not in his hospitality, it's not in even in his capacity to serve, although those things are very important, serving and being hospitable. It's in the Word of God itself. And the call for us as believers is to preach the Word and to avail ourselves to the preached Word. And Why? Well, because the Word of God is that thing that has substance, and so it gives both substance and sustenance to life. It's the thing that empowers us. It's the thing that grounds us. It's the thing that anchors us. It's the thing that gets us moving. It convicts. It transforms. It renews. It resurrects. It calls us to attention. It tells us when to stand, and it tells us when to sit. All these things happen because of the Word of God. And so it should not surprise us that Paul is about to die, and he says to Timothy, if I could say anything in the world to you, here's what I'll say. Preach the Word. Because, beloved, we need the preached Word. You need it. I need it. We need to avail ourselves to the preached Word. 
not as a right, not just because it's what Christians do, but because the very Scriptures that we subscribe to tell us that's exactly what we need. As we enter this final chapter of 2 Timothy, we are reading some of Paul's last words. These are some of the last words that we know that Paul wrote because he is about to be killed. And it shouldn't be lost on us, as I've already said, that he, he decided to say, preach the Word with his last breath, with his last correspondence to preach the Word. So this is not just true for Timothy, for this pastor, it's true for Christians, that you and I are called to proclaim and live out the precepts of God, because we live in a world that needs that more than they need anything else, whether they see it or not, whether they want it or not, whether they realize it or not, or whatever. This is what humanity needs. So when we think about what it is, as we've been looking at fidelity, we've been looking at faithfulness throughout this book, what is faithfulness? For Christians, well, Christian faithfulness, it begins and ends, it's two bookends, it begins and ends with us being anchored in the Word. That's what drives us, that's what shapes our thinking, that's the narrative that we subscribe to. That's the story that we submit to, the Word of God. So fidelity anchored in the Word in all things. So whether it's teaching or preaching or leading or confronting or defending or any other action that we engage in as believers, we are driven by God's Word. And beloved, I want you to hear me. That's not just helpful. It's not just helpful to be anchored in God's Word. It's not just helpful to be driven by God's Word. It is foundational. We have to have it. It's, it's one of those building blocks in the Christian life that if it isn't there, the house will crumble like a house of cards because what is the foundation for all of life? It is the Word of God, the objective truth of Scripture that we build everything else on. And if we lose that, we lose the whole structure. There is no, I'm not going to submit to the Word of God, but I'm going to have Christian principles. We've seen this in history. I'm not going to delve into Immanuel Kant as a philosopher, but he put forward this notion of, of, of Christless Christianity. It was a basic morality, and you know what? It fails. You don't have a Christless Christianity, and you don't have a, Christ, you don't have a Christ-filled Christianity if you don't have the Word of God. This is Worldview 101. What, 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 how do we answer the, the, the questions of life of creation, of, of fall, of redemption and restoration? Where are the answers to those? In this Word. And so we should be preaching it. We should be teaching it. We should be submitting ourselves to it because that's where the answers are. So Paul gives this final charge to Timothy. As we said, it could have been anything. And I want us to understand that, that, that preaching is not inconsequential and it's not optional. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a preacher. I would say that whether I was up here or not, it's, preaching is the express call of the church. Preaching is the number one priority for Christians, both as we proclaim God's Word one to another and to the world, and as we submit to it, because we're not just submitting to some dude talking. When preaching is done right and it's done faithfully, we are submitting to the Word of God being proclaimed. And that makes it a powerful endeavor. And so when we come to preaching, we are not just coming to, to learn, though we are coming to learn. We're not just 
coming here to, to build our tool shed so that we have better tools in conversation, though it does help for that too. We are coming to preaching to be transformed, not just to win arguments, not just to get more knowledge, not just to, to think that I'm better now than I was before I heard this message. It's to be renewed and transformed and to made new again and again and again. And so preaching becomes so vital, so vital to us. And here's, I want to say this because I think it's important to say preaching is not for putting pastors on a pedestal. It is not. Preaching is not for putting pastors on a pedestal. Preaching is designed to remind us that the Word of God is the lifeblood of the church. And so we come here, we should come here thirsty and hungry for truth. And the only place that that thirst and hunger can be satisfied is in the Word of God. And so with those thoughts in mind, there's a central point that we need to see this morning, and it's this, that fighting the good fight is faithfulness to God's Word. That fighting the good fight is faithfulness to God's Word. What does Paul have on display here? You might not catch it, but it's the Word of God. I mean, I, this is the most fundamental aspect to ministry or the Christian life. And so when, when we think about what is the overarching command for Christians, well, you can read it here, kind of. It's in, implied here. You can see it in other places. The overarching command for Christians is to be Word-centered, to be centered, to be grounded, to be anchored in, however you want to say it, but to be Word-centered people. Jesus makes a similar statement in John chapter 15 as he's talking to his disciples. He uses the word abide, abide in me. Any man who abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What Jesus is doing there, how do we abide in Christ? How do we remain fixed in Christ? How do we remain anchored in Christ? How do we look to Christ solely? Beloved, it begins, it ends, and all throughout the middle, it's being word people. It's being captured by the word. It's being committed to the word. It's proclaiming the word. It's letting the word shape who we are, what we do, what we say, how we live. And when we fail in those endeavors, when we fail to let the word do that, that we're moving in repentance back to the word. And let's be clear, we constantly fail at that. We do. All of us do. That's the goal and beauty of repentance. I've said this a bazillion times. Make it a bazillion and one. It is one of the reasons Martin Luther said one of the most powerful things he ever said when he said all of life is repentance because our whole lives, we should be moving away from our flesh back to the Word of God. And we're constantly in that valley of needing to get back to the Word of God and away from our flesh. And so when Jesus is talking in John 15 about abiding in Him, well, the way that we do that most consistently is we root ourselves in the Word and we stay there, and we follow the pathway of the Holy Spirit. Paul says this, starting in chapter 4, I charge you, or literally he could say, he could also, I solemnly charge you, or I make a solemn declaration before God and Christ Jesus, who is a, the judge of the living and the dead, so I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. I'm going to stop right there for just a second. 
So Paul is giving this overarching charge, this final charge to Timothy and to the church. This is a call both to, to everybody who calls Christ Lord to faithfully proclaim the Word of God. And implicit in that faithful proclamation is a love for. This is why when we see the gathered body, the most opportune thing to do for the gathered body of Christ is to preach the Word. And when that's not happening, that is a travesty. Because that's exactly what Paul said we should be doing, is preaching the Word. So we have this charge. Paul makes this declaration. Uh, ESV says, in the presence of God. Maybe your translation says, before God, either are fine. But the whole point of it being there, before God and Christ, is Paul is telling us something. This is not just Paul. That Paul is not just saying this. This is not just Paul's command. This comes directly from the Lord. This is God's Word to Timothy and to the church. This has authority. This is objectively true. And he says, so this is the Word from God the Father, from God the Son. We could say it that way. But then he lays out who Jesus is. I mean, we know who Jesus is, but Paul makes this clarification. And of Christ Jesus, who is judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom. So as he, as he gives this descriptor, Jesus is judge, but he uses living and the dead. This is a common Hebrew thing. It's called a merism. And what a merism is, is it seeks to capture everything. From, so you have this, you have your two, two polar opposites, and what it means is that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead and everything in between. So Jesus is the rightful judge of all things without exception. Why is Paul saying that here? Because he's about to tell Timothy to preach the Word. And when we start dining to preach the Word, the one thing we're going to be start as human beings that's going to start to cycle through our minds is, what will they think of me? What will they say? What will so-and-so say? How will they think of me? What Paul is doing, he's preparing the way for Timothy. Preach the Word, Timothy, and remember who your judge is. It's not any man. It's not any woman. It's not anybody who is in your congregation. The judge, the true judge is Jesus Christ. That is, that is whose glory we preach for. We are preaching for the audience of one, for the one who is judge over all. And so, beloved, Christians become liberated when we begin to live our lives for the glory of Christ. I know that sounds uh, like a horribly obvious thing to say, but that's what Paul is doing for Timothy here. He's rooting him in, you labor for the glory of Christ, not anyone else. So you preach the Word, young man. You preach Christ's Word. When he gets into this charge, so now the charge, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. What is the charge, Paul? Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So when you see that little phrase there, preach the Word, you're looking at an imperative command. That is an express command by Paul. So this is not what Timothy can do. If they gather on a Sunday, it's not an option on the table. It is what he's called to do. When they gather as a body, he is to preach the Word. Timothy's calling as a minister of the gospel, as a faithful man of God, is to preach the Word. And when we see this, preach the word, this express command, 
Why is Paul giving that here? Well, I think we've got to root it back a little bit. We've got to root it back in the end of chapter 3. So in chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, preach the Word. Why? Because it's God's Word. That is what will make us, will give profit in teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. That we are called to preach the Word because it is God's Word. It's rooted in who God is. And then he, he expounds on this phrase. So he says, preach the Word, right? That's the overarching charge. What does that look like? What does it mean to preach the Word? Well, first and foremost, be ready in season and out of season. Literally, literally what that says is, be ready when it's convenient and untimely. Be ready when it is both convenient, easy to do, or more amenable to do, and when it's untimely, when it's completely not easy to do, when it's not convenient. So we're called to literally persist in this endeavor. When it's easy, when it's not easy, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, be ready to proclaim always. Beloved, this is not just for preachers. Certainly, I need to be ready to proclaim always, but as believers in the Lord in this room this morning, and anybody who's listening, as believers, we need to be ready to proclaim. We need to be ready to bring truth to bear in conversations where that truth needs to be brought to bear. We can do it lovingly. We can do it kindly. We can do it humbly, humbly, but we have to do it. That's the call for us is to be faithful in this. So part of preaching in the Word is persisting when it's easy and not easy when it's desired and not desired. And then he gives this little trio of rebuke or reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Again, all three express commands, part of what it means to proclaim the Word. But what we're looking at here is what it means to proclaim. So in some senses, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna fall on that spectrum in some place. We're going to either need to be, or we're going to be encouraged or exhorted. We're going to need reproof. We're going to need rebuke or some combination of all three. But part of those, all three of those are part of what it means to proclaim truth and to be involved in discipleship. That's why I keep coming back around to this, hey, are you, are you getting involved in discipleship? Are you, are you doing, are, is there something you're a part of where you're being discipled or you're helping disciple other people for, for reasons such as this? Because that's how we grow. That's how we experience the reproof, the rebuke, the exhortation. Those are opportunities for the Word to be proclaimed and for us to grow. So when you're looking at verse 2, preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, what we're seeing here, we're seeing the aim of preaching more broadly. That's what preaching should be doing in our lives, and discipleship more narrowly. How do we then get in the nitty-gritty of each other's lives and see these things come to pass. That's by means of discipleship. And Paul is encouraging Timothy in both of these. Because here's the thing. This is true for me. This is true for you. The Word of God should correct, instruct, and encourage us at various times and in various ways. At various times 
and in various ways. Last week when I preached on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, I will not, I'll just, in, in, in the spirit of full transparency, every, a lot of my sermons are convicting to me personally. That was one of the most convicting sermons I've preached at a chapel, in my own opinion, for me, because the challenge of the reproof that I needed, the exhortation that I needed to consider was, am I really trusting in the Lord? Do I give lip service to that? Am I, am I really walking in trust? Or are half my anxieties just induced because of worry, because there are places where I'm really not trusting in the Lord with all my heart? And so that's what the Word of God is designed to do. That's why we proclaim it one to another. George Bowes brought a devotion at our last elder meeting and out of the Psalms, and it was awesome and great and challenging and encouraging. And as I'm thinking about this this morning, I'm reminded of how that faithful proclamation by a faithful brother to other brothers is exactly what we need, the Word of God applied to our minds and hearts so that we can walk in faithfulness. I love that Paul adds patience and teaching here. What does he mean by patience? You know what it is? It's trusting in the Lord to do His good work and in His way and in His time. That when we faithfully proclaim, beloved, we don't have to press and press and press. We can put the Word out there and let the Spirit do His job. Are we aiming for ways to teach? And I don't mean in an official capacity. Maybe you will do that. When we think about teaching here, it's just working in truth to conversation or discipleship relationships. Are we looking for ways to help teach truth to other people and to ourselves? Because one thing I didn't say that I want to come back to just real, real briefly, in, in verse 1, um, when he says, by his appearing in his kingdom. So what, that's also setting the context for us. What Paul has in view there is the, this is eschatological, is looking towards the, the final coming of Christ. So what do we need to do in view of Christ's return is preach the word, persist in it, reprove, rebuke, exhort, do all the things that help each other, help us all to grow. Now, why is this so vital? Paul tells us right here. Because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, I bet you, and I don't want a show of hands, I bet you if I took a show of hands, do we see this happening? Almost every hand in this room would shoot up. Yeah, we see it happening. We're watching it happen. We're watching this very thing happen. When Paul says, for a time is coming when people will not endure, he uses a future tense verb, though he doesn't mean to relegate this to the future. It's just a way of speaking for Paul. Paul understands what he's talking about here is already happening. One of the reasons he's writing this letter is to deal with this. And so we are living in a time right now where people do not endure sound teaching. We're watching it happen. We are watching it unfold in, in our very midst this is the constant battle that we face as human beings. So as we watch it unfold, whether it's, whether it's people trying to redefine God's sexual ethic or redefine theology or minimize who Jesus is or minimize what Jesus has done or maximize how much we give to the whole salvation process or any number of different things, what we need to understand, it may feel like this is the fight of our time, and it is, 
But it was also the fight of our grandfather's time and his grandfather's time and his grandfather's time. And all the way back to when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said it's happening then too. So we are looking at a constant human fight. And beloved, why, do Paul, why does Paul say to preach the Word? Because where will we stand when these voices start shaking the tree in the church? I don't know how many of you were privy this past week to read Barna. The George Barna Group has just put out a study, post-pandemic study, I think was maybe the end of last year, where they were looking at how many people who profess religion or spirituality or even Christianity hold to a Christian worldview. Now, the number was shocking to me. Shocking to me. Do you know what it was? 4%. 4% of people polled held to what they called a biblical worldview. 4%. Another 14 would be described more as emergent. They're cool with biblical themes, but they're not really down with all that authority stuff. They're happy to love one another. They're happy to be kind. But when Jesus starts making demands that run contrary to culture, that's where they abandon. The rest of them had some sense of biblical truth, but not with a capital T, truth insofar as it fit their lifestyles. That should shock us. Now, now Barna says that 4% of Americans, they only polled 2,000 people. I don't know how they extrapolate that to all America. Maybe it does work out that way. But even out of 2,000 people who confess some sense of Christianity, 4% think the Bible is God's inspired word and is authoritative. Why is this important? Why is it important that we preach the word and stand here? Because we're not looking forward to a post-Christian America beloved of God. We're there. We're in it. And we as the church have to be the voice of truth and reason and sound doctrine because we are living in a time where people do look for teaching that accommodates their own lifestyle. It was happening with Paul. So it shouldn't be lost on us that the cult of personality, the people who call, are called uh, some evangelical celebrities, it should not be lost on us or surprise us when bit by bit, voice by voice, they begin turning on historical, biblical Christianity to stay relevant and current with the culture. It happens all the time. And they think they're doing this brave, going against the grain thing, and they're not. They're the sheep. You don't want to be, if you want to stand out and be different in today's culture, preach the Word. Teach the Word. Stand on the Word. Disciple with the Word. Because the culture is already seeking to have their ears tickled. That is no challenge, just affirmation. Just affirm me. And now, not only do we have to be okay with it, we do have to affirm. And if now if we're not affor affirming, we're hate-filled or bigoted. Beloved, we've got to be ready to stand in season and out of season, when it's easy, when it's not easy, when it's convenient, when it is untimely, that we are called to go after truth. Paul says this, people who go this way, they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, that is, that is a cause and effect. When you wander away or when you, 
when you turn away from listening to the truth, you do wander into myths. And myths here, you know, I know that Tolkien and, and, and Lewis redeemed the concept of myth, and I don't think they were wrong to do that. But when, when Paul talks about myths here, he's not talking about in any sort of positive sense that C.S. Lewis might have used it. He's talking about some fanciful story that doesn't give people hope. And beloved, myths didn't die when Greek mythology and Norse mythology died. They are still looking for fanciful stories that will give them no hope. And Paul says that is the fruit of what happens when we turn away from the truth. When truth is rejected, we will replace it with a lie. It's in our, our, our need for a narrative is in our DNA. So what does Paul tell Timothy to do? So he's told him, preach the word, and then follow that up with four successive express commands. He comes back around again in verse 5. So as for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Express command, be sober-minded, express command, endure suffering, express command, do the work of an evangelist, express command, fulfill your ministry. That's sober-minded, or it could say self-controlled in your translation. Either one of those is fine. The idea is to be clear, to be self-controlled in all things. For what purpose? To what end? To follow the precepts of God. To preach the Word and then live out those precepts. That's the idea. And he tells us to, again, endure suffering, to persevere in the power and the calling of Christ. Where, how, what does endurance and perseverance really look like? Trusting in the Lord with all our heart and leaning not on our own understanding in all our ways, acknowledging Him so that He can make the pathway straight. That we are willing to endure hardship for the sake of the truth. Do the work of an evangelist, again, an express command. What exactly does Paul mean here? Well, it's not clear exactly what he is. At the very least, doing the work of the evangelist is spreading the message but for Paul, it's, it's a bit more than that. It's not just spreading the message. It's actually what we've already talked about, doing some discipleship, being involved with people's lives, doing the work of evangelists. It's constantly bringing the truth to bear on minds and hearts. And again, we leave, or we, we are faithful in that endeavor, and we leave the results up to the Holy Spirit that we're called in proclamation and discipleship. And again, at the risk of being repetitive, proclamation Neither proclamation nor discipleship, they're not an add-on to the faith. If we've already hammered how, how vital preaching is, I can't hammer on you enough how vital discipleship is. It is vital. It's not just something we can do or not do if we don't want to or, or if we want to. We do it. It's, it. We're engaged in this endeavor. It's part of life in the church, in the body of Christ, to be faithful. It's the express calling of the church. Fulfill your ministry. Literally, what Paul tells to Timothy is fulfill your service. Ministry is a service. Who is it a service to? First and foremost, it's a service to God. Secondly, it's a service one to another. So ministry is really about serving. And Timothy and the whole church, we're called to fulfill our service to the Lord in our faithfulness to truth, in our proclamation, in our discipleship. And you know what? <laughs> Just living for God. Do you find yourself ever in situations, people that you know, who are humble, faithful people that you're inspired by, that encourage you? And they may not ever say, they may never give you these grand nuggets of wisdom. It's just watching them live. It's watching them live. 
Beloved, one of the best ways we can encourage each other is live for the Lord in each other's presence. Live for, the, live for the Lord in each other's presence. That we put our hand to the plow of Christ and we labor well for Him. And when we fail, we repent and we start over. And our life will be filled with those moments. Paul briefly wraps this up, this little paragraph here, before he gets into some final things that he'll say to Timothy. Verses 6, 7, and 8 are what we would call kind of a Paul's last testimony to Timothy. And it stabs like a knife because you know that Paul understands what's about to come down the pike, and it's also encouraging. He has done exactly what I've just exhorted you and me to do. Paul says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. We need to memorize that scripture. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And may, and, or may we pray every day to the Lord that when we are about to die, that that can be our testimony. What a testimony. Knowing your death is coming. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. I want you to notice there's no grandiosity here. There's none. No grandiosity. When we think about the Christian life and we boil it down to its simple statement, it really is about keeping the faith. And Paul says, remember me by this. You can remember anything else you want to, but remember, remember, remember that I kept the faith. And if we remember that, and that can be said of us, then beloved of God. This is the final summation. He's being poured out like a drink offering. You cannot miss the picture there of libations. Those are drink offerings from the Old Testament. Paul is saying, I'm being sacrificed. Death is coming. His death is coming. And I want us to understand, by using this language, Paul is telling us that his life has been given, not taken. His life isn't taken. Rome isn't taking his life. Caesar is not taking his life. He is giving his life for Jesus. He's giving his life for Jesus. And when we understand our purpose and we understand our calling, we can give with joy. We really can. We can give with joy. We can give with joy. Not because it's easy, but when we give and we lay down our lives, it is an act of sacrifice of our faith in God's goodness and faithfulness. That's what we see here. This is a statement of God's goodness and faithfulness. Paul says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Departure, there's death. That's exactly what he means, means to say, that his death is coming. Fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. We don't need to make a neat distinction between any of those. People try to, to make those distinctions, and we don't need to. Fought the fight, finished the race, kept the faith. It's just Paul's testimony of fidelity. I was faithful. I've been faithful. What is this? What is this? What are we looking at here? This is the fruit of a life submitted to Christ. When we are submitted to Christ, we can fight the good fight. Not because we're strong enough, but because Christ is. We can finish the race because Christ endures in us. We can keep the faith because the Holy Spirit is guiding us in all truth. Paul finishes this 
Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What is the victory crown? I want you to notice, Paul makes it clear. How does, how does, how does he come to this crown? That God gives it to him. He's awarded this by God, this crown of righteousness, this righteousness that God gives is the gift of God that he's given to Paul. Why does Paul fight the good fight? Why does Paul finish the race? Why does Paul keep the faith? Because God has given him the crown of righteousness. And that's his response to what God has given. It's the reward for Paul. It is the reward for us when we die in Christ. So as we look here this morning... What's the simple statement? What's the simple sum of all this? We are bound by the Word of God in all things. Now, Brad, that's an incredibly obvious and simple statement. It is. But when 4% of people who profess some type of religion have a biblical worldview, it's no longer obvious to state that we are bound by the Word of God in all things. In fact, it becomes essential for us to proclaim this again and again and again. It's not our prerogative to proclaim or live by the word of Christ if we choose. It is fundamental to our faith. It's foundational to who we are. There is no life. There is no peace. There is no hope in compromising the word of God. So the question that we have to constantly ask and answer is this. Who will we serve? Whom will we serve? We talked about this with Daniel. The constant question, who or what will I serve? Will I serve Christ? Will I serve culture? Will I serve me? Will I serve the Lord? Will I serve other people's opinions of me? Or will I serve the truth? The Word calls us, Ephesians 5, the Word cleanses us. And it is the Word that gives us hope and purpose. You and I this morning, if you call Christ Lord in this room, we are people of the Word, and may we always embrace it, always, even when the culture around us rejects it. May we stand both in season and out of season, both when it's convenient, when it's untimely, for the Word of God. Please pray with me. Father, thank you this morning for the Word. Thank you for its power, its truth, its goodness, its beauty. Thank you that it does shape who we are, what we are, how we live. Father, uh, forgive us that we often may try to find an easier path or a less burdensome one. The barbs and calls of culture sometimes intimidate us, and yet, Father, encourage us to be bold, bold in your strength. I pray that your Spirit will keep us, your Spirit will nourish us, and your Spirit will keep us on the pathway of righteousness for your name's sake. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.